Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all the Just the News podcasts. You can go to justthenews.com and see the list of them on the homepage. Today, the big chill, government's COVID crackdown on legitimate scientific discussion and debate. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Today, we're devoting the podcast to The Big Chill, Smearing scientists in the name of science. It's happened before. I've talked about that on previous podcasts and in original and investigative stories on my news programs. But it's probably never happened before to so many scientists at the same time and in such a public and obvious way. I'll be talking to Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor at the Stanford School of Medicine, a medical doctor with a PhD in economics. Bhattacharya's economics background may be what helped him recognize and emphasize right off the bat how massive the harms of the COVID lockdowns worldwide would be. Of course, he was far from the only one. Thousands, actually tens of thousands of scientists, signed onto a document that he co-authored on this topic, the Great Barrington Declaration. In fact, if you want to read more about that, just Google or search the Great Barrington Declaration online. Many of these scientists spoke out internationally or tried to, but they were subjected to perhaps one of the largest orchestrated smear and propaganda campaigns we've ever seen. It's an important but little discussed casualty of COVID, scientific debate, and what happened to reputable scientists who were off the government narrative, and by the way, who in many cases proved to be far more correct than the public health experts in their predictions and more on target in terms of their advice. And yet the public health experts paid no price. And in fact, they were able to silence, smear and retaliate against the others, even withhold taxpayer funding from these scientists. Here's Dr. Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford. You recently wrote an opinion piece or co-authored how vaccine fanatics fueled vaccine skepticism. I thought we'd start by just you talking about what you mean by that. Sure. Uh, so the vaccine, uh, the, 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 the movement that, that was, uh, was arguing that, that children shouldn't be vaccinated, that movement before the pandemic was relatively small. Um, I mean, they, they, they often were vocal, but they were a relatively small part of the population. We had very wide coverage of, of childhood vaccines in the United States. Uh, what's happened during the pandemic is in, in support of the COVID vaccine, there are people, I call them vaccine fanatics, that have essentially adopted tactics almost tailor-made to undermine the confidence that people have in vaccines generally. They don't think they're doing that, but that's the result. That's the result, right? And so now I think the, vac- the, the, the set of people who are, who, you know, who are worried about vaccines is much larger than it once was. 
And I believe that is a direct consequence of some of the, the manipulations of facts that the vaccine fanatics have used. Now, let me just give you a few of these. So, and before you list them, you are not anti-vaccine. Let's make that very clear. I, I'm, I'm in favor of the childhood vaccines. I'm in favor of uh, using the COVID vaccines for the people who benefit the most, which is especially older people. I've been arguing for vaccinating large numbers of old pe older people because I believe the COVID vaccines will prevent deaths from them. Um, and, the, and it's worth the, the uncertain you know, risks of the vaccine for that, because the, the death rates from COVID is so high for older people. So no, I'm, I'm in favor of, I'm very much in favor. I think vaccines are among the most important medical advances in history. Go ahead. So, um, so what, what have they done? So, so the, probably the most egregious is this denial of natural immunity. Natural immunity, what I mean by that is recovery after you recover, you get COVID and you recover. Well, you induce your immune system, you train your immune system so that when the next time you get, you, you're exposed to COVID, you, you might not get it at all. Or uh, if you do get it, it'll be milder. Right? That, that, that is a strongly established fact. We've basically known that fact since the, the middle of 2020. And yet, these vaccine fanatics, the, the, actually the, by, by vaccine fanatics, I mean people, mainstream people pushing the vaccine, places like the CDC, have argued that there is no proof or evidence of, of essentially protection against future, future COVID uh, exposure after you COVID recovered. No, no natural immunity. Um, why is that important for the vaccine? Because if you are trying to understand who should, uh, well, who benefits the most from the vaccine versus who benefits less, well, if you're COVID recovered, the benefit of the vaccine is less. Lots of studies show that. Uh, and it just makes intuitive sense, right? You already have a, a fair degree of protection. Um, whereas if you're immune naive, you have not had COVID and recovered, well, you face the full risk of, of the first time you meet COVID. Um, and so by denying immune, this, fa this fact about the immunity, pe like people out, out in the real world are, are not dumb. They, they can see that it's much more important that people who are immune naive be vaccinated than people who are not. And they, they say, well, why are, they, why are they saying this false thing to me? What else are they saying to me that's false? Um, another, another example of this uh, that, that the CDC and, and others, um, including OSHA, OSHA, pushed is this idea that this vaccine can stop the transmission of COVID. Like we, actually, we saw the CDC director just admit that she'd made, finally admit that she, that she had adopted the conclusion that it could stop the transmission of COVID out of hope, not based on any randomized trial evidence. Um, you, we've seen, now, why have, did they say this? Because, I mean, it's partly because of hope. They hoped that this vaccine would stop transmission. But we've, we've, the, the reality is that many people who are vaccinated still get COVID. I, I got the COVID vaccine in April of 2021. And I got COVID in August of 2021. Uh, that is not an unusual experience now. I think many people listening to this had that same exact experience. Um, so the, the, what does the vaccine do? You, if, it, if it doesn't prevent you from getting COVID, well, it prevents you from having a severe reaction to COVID or reduces the likelihood you'll have a severe reaction. It reduces the risk of death from COVID if you are to be infected, which is a really important thing, especially if you're older where the risk of death is so much higher. Um, so, but this... Denial of this fact that the vaccine doesn't protect against transmission has led to all kinds of social harm, right? So why have a vaccine mandate? 
well, the reason you have a vaccine mandate is because you think, okay, if I, if I vaccinate everybody, the disease stops circulating, right? That's if you're making, making this mistake that the disease stops, uh, the vaccine stops transmission. And then we've gotten rid of COVID. And, and so- That's if, how it was kind of advertised on the front end by a lot of people. Uh, by, by Tony Fauci, by, by Cheryl, uh, Rochelle Walensky, uh, the, you know, the CDC director, a whole, a whole bunch of like luminaries said this. Um, even though the data were coming out very strongly uh, in, in like late spring, or early summer 2020, that, uh, 2021, that that's not true. Right? You're seeing highly vaccinated societies having big waves. Um, and so uh, what you had is, a, a, again, a situation where policies were adopted like vaccine mandates, discriminatory vaccine passports, so you can't go into a you know, museum or a restaurant or whatever if you're not vaccinated, all on the premise that the vaccinated pose less risk to others than the unvaccinated. The false premise, both the vaccinated and the unvaccinated can spread the disease. If you're in a room filled with unvaccinated people who had COVID and recovered, you are actually better protected against getting the disease than your full room full of vaccinated people who've never had COVID before. So there isn't this clean distinction. Um, and what does this do to the public? The public's looking at this, listening to the folk, folks on the, on the talking heads on TV, telling them that the, you get, you, 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 it stops transmission essentially, but then they're losing their jobs. They can see it's not stopping transmission. They see that the, 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 essentially the, the talking heads are wrong and they lose confidence in the vaccines. Like, I mean, I, I, if I were, if I, I, I said, I'm very strongly in favor of the vaccines, but like I, I have lost trust in the ability of the, 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 the essentially the, 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 the government bureaucrats that are in charge of our COVID response, people like Tony Fauci to tell the truth. And what does that do to confidence in vaccines? I think it collapses them. And I think a lot of people um, listening to this, will, seeing this, they'll start to say, well, if they're telling me untruths about this vaccine, maybe they're telling me untruths about other vaccines. And I think that's devastating because I believe very strongly that the childhood vaccines are, are incredibly important for childhood health. This may be a good time to mention the whole loss of confidence among many people in CDC and FDA and NIH, the National Institutes of Health, where Dr. Anthony Fauci works. Based on the recommendations they made, sometimes false information that they got behind, sometimes true information that they tried to suppress. What is your thought on where these public health agencies go from here if they, if they could arguably be said to have made so many poor decisions at the most important moment in time? I, mean, I think it's really important to diagnose exactly what's happened, right, and, and to say what, what should be done, right? So if, I think it's different at the different agencies. Right, so the NIH, I think the central, the, 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 this is the agency that is responsible for a funding biological research. Um, its job is essentially to fund research that won't be funded elsewhere, right? So it shouldn't be funding drug company, like t t drugs that are already on patent. You have drug companies to do that. It should be funding research that is in the public good. Right, so if, I, if a, a drug, for instance, that's that's inexpensive and no drug company owns it, they're not. No drug company is going to do research on it. It's the NIH's job to do research on it. Uh, uh, the The job of the, the NIH is then to fund research in the public interest. What's happened is uh, you have people like Tony Fauci and Francis Collins, who was the head of the NIH. They became very closely involved, not just in funding research, but also in advising health policy. They advised very strongly in favor of lockdown measures. 
to, to two different presidents. And um, essentially, they marginalize people who oppose them in issue after issue after issue. And you can see this from documents that were released in the emails that they wrote to each other on issues like uh, the, the, what did this, was this virus concocted by, based on, and, and uh, in a lab and leaked accidentally, right? That's, that's an active issue. I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. I don't know if it's for sure if that's happened yet, but it's possible, right? It seems a reasonable thing to care about. Uh, did the, are there early treatments, cheap drugs that can be used to treat it? This is something that, that, that you know, it's, it's, it's on, on many reasonable people think that there could be. Right? Uh, uh, are the lockdowns the, the best way to deal with the, the pandemic? In all three issues, I, I've seen the same playbook from the NIH. They marginal, they decide one side of it. No, no, it's it's an animal vector. It's a, the anim, It was developed in animal in animal to human transmission. It wasn't having to do with the Wuhan lab. No, you can't treat with any early treatment. All the all these cheap drugs won't work for certain, even before you've done the studies. Um, and uh, lockdowns are the only way to save any lives, right? All, all, and each of these things, the NIH, led by Tony Fauci and Francis Collins, took a position and then marginalized scientists, right? There was an email that Francis Collins wrote about me calling me a fringe epidemiologist after I wrote this, uh, this document called the Great Barrington Declaration where we argued for a, a focused protection strategy, protect the vulnerable, don't go with, with full-on lockdowns, keep schools open, for instance. Um, and uh, the, the, uh, the playbook is then to engage big, big tech media to marginalize the scientists, make them seem like they're fringe, even though there's legitimate scientific disagreement, to create an illusion of consensus that does not exist in the scientific community in favor of their preferred strategy. Well, what happens is that when you have people who, who control tens of billions of dollars of funding, and the, and, the, and the futures of scientists, right? Because it's not just that they get, the scientists get money from the NIH, they also get prestige. I mean, I've been funded the NIH most of my life, or most of my career, last 20 years. It helps like, convince your university, for instance, that you should get tenure. A lot of scientists looking at this say, okay, well, this, these are fringe ideas. I better stay silent or else my career is threatened. And that's what's happened. The, they use their power to silence scientists. Um, and that is a conflict of interest, a deep, so what the, the kind of reform the NIH needs to hap, have is a, a bright wall between the funding of science and the participation in health policy. Uh, the CDC, I think, um, has made so many mistakes and it will take an, an enormous effort to regain the trust of the public. Uh, I'll just give you one, I think, that, that uh, there was a sense almost throughout the, CD, the, 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 uh, the, the pandemic that uh, the people that run the CDC have a political bent, right? We don't, you don't really need to, to squint too hard to say who, who the CDC director voted for. Um, and uh, they have, there's a sense that, that they've taken sides in American cultural battles, right? So like a lot of the epidemiologists, not, not just the CDC, but just generally, when the BLM protests happened, they signed a letter saying, look, people have a right to protest. It's, it's, a, it's a fundamental human right. It's okay, even though we're in the middle of a pandemic, which, by the way, I agree with. Um, but then the trucker protests happens, and you can tell where, which side they take. Um, you can't have an agency 
that's responsible for public health to take sides like that. It needs to have the trust of the entire population. It cannot take sides. The public health establishment and the medical establishment cannot take sides in political battles because uh, it doesn't matter if you, if you live in a blue state or a red state, if you're a Democrat or Republican, public health is for you. And if it's seen to be taking sides, half the population will lose trust, and that's exactly what's happened. Let me take that in a slightly different direction. They seem to not know what to do. In addition to the issue you raised about political bent, they were wrong. They put out some incorrect or false information, at least in one important case. It was intentional because we were able to document they said something recommending vaccines for people who've already had COVID, knowing that the studies didn't say what they claimed the study said. Um, so I think the idea that the premier health agency in the world didn't know what to do when a pandemic broke out and put out wrong information so often, that's really been harmful. I completely agree. It's, 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 uh, it's been almost embarrassing to watch small countries like Qatar, uh, Sweden, Denmark, uh, put out important study after important study on the epidemiology of the disease. So, for instance, that's where the, some of these studies are where I learned about the declining efficacy of the, of the vaccines against infection. Well, why isn't our CDC putting out these studies? Instead, it looks like they're putting out propaganda to prop up what they had already concluded before. It just reeks of scientific incompetence. Or the, or the manipulation of science in order to get their desired policy ends. Um, I think that, that this, this, whatever is wrong at the CDC is going to need a thoroughgoing reform if the American public is going to have to, to kind of trust it again. And any thoughts on FDA? I, I think the FDA has acted, in the, in the, uh, acted as like a captured agency, an agency that is captured by pharmaceutical interests. Uh, now, partly that's... Uh, it's maybe being a little bit unfair. I, I know I've worked with the FDA in the past, and there are a lot of good scientists there, good, a lot of good, honest scientists there. But they, the, a lot of the decisions they've made about what, how, how, what, what drugs get rapid approval, they, they, it's, you know, like, uh, just take the story of remdesivir, right? Remdesivir is a drug made by Gilead, Gilead Scientists, uh, which is a, it's a pharmaceutical company. Now, um, the problem with remdesivir, it was put through on the basis of a trial that when, when I read it, I just look at it and say, okay, this is probably, I wouldn't have approved it on the basis of this trial. It looked like I would have asked for more data. Um, and yet the FDA approved it. And then at the same time, you have a drug like ivermectin. Now, I don't know for certain if ivermectin works. There've been a whole bunch of studies, randomized studies, most of which find that it seems like it works, uh, but there's some that find that it doesn't work. And there are legitimate scientists who disagree about this. Um, but based on the standard of evidence used to approve remdesivir, ivermectin should have been approved a long time ago. Uh, and it just, what's the difference? Well, ivermectin does not have anyone who holds the patent on it, an active patent on it. And so no one stands to make a lot of money on it. There's no, there's no interest, outside interest, pushing the FDA to approve it. Whereas there's this enormous outside interest, um, you know, Gilead Science is pushing the FDA to, to uh, approve remdesivir. Now, I'm not against actually having an interest, because I think a lot of times those drugs, if they lang languish uh, in, the, in some bureaucratic mess, it, 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 it does no good to anybody, right? So I don't think it's necessarily bad. 
But I think that there ought to be a public interest. The FDA also should be acting in the public interest and should be giving at least the same standard of evidence that they hold the, the drug companies to, drug company drugs to, to, the, to, the, to these cheap drugs that, that might work. More after a short break. At Verbo, we have vacation homes for you and whoever you call family. And by family, we don't just mean shared DNA like parents and cousins and grandma. We mean childhood friends sharing a home-cooked meal or teammates sharing a joke. It's sharing a girl's weekend or guys sharing tough love. It's sharing time with the people who make you realize just how important family is and why you need a place to be one. Furbo, a place for together. Download the app to find yours. Did you know that you could invest in crypto through your retirement account? That's right. iTrust Capital allows you to invest in over two dozen of the most popular cryptocurrencies. And unlike the stock market, you can buy and sell 24 hours a day. With iTrust Capital, you also get the tax benefits of a retirement account while investing in crypto. Visit iTrustCapital.com to start investing today. That's iTrustCapital.com. Taxes and conditions may apply. Fees apply. Cryptocurrencies are a speculative investment with risk of loss. iTrust Capital Incorporated does not provide legal, investment, or tax advice. Consult with a qualified legal investment or tax professional. Looking ahead, let's say there's another pandemic or big public health emergency with the federal agencies in the same state as they're in today. Where do you think that leaves us? I, I, think, we're, I think we're in a very, very bad state. We have to reform each of these agencies pretty fundamentally. Um, it's gonna, we're going to need to have a, a very honest look at the problems in this pandemic, um, you know, almost like a 9-11 style commission, because I think that there have been enormous, uh, enormous problems in our pandemic response from, almost from the beginning. Probably the central problem is actually an intellectual one. Uh, and by, by that I mean, like, what, what is the idea, what was our goal when the pandemic hit? And it seems to me almost all of the errors stem from this idea that we could suppress the virus down to low levels and then it would go away, we'd have to worry about it again. That was false almost from the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and a lot of the errors, a lot of the problems, a lot of the, 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 the difficulties we had have stemmed from that central premise that we have some technology to stop the disease from spreading. But we, we don't, right? So masks, the CDC have pushed masks well, far beyond whatever any, uh, the, the evidence actually says. Masks won't stop the epidemic. The lockdowns, I mean, did closing schools actually stop the pandemic? California, which had schools closed for almost 18 months, um, public schools obviously closed for almost 18 months, have had almost the same uh, COVID outcomes, age-adjusted, as Florida, uh, and worse on uh, excess deaths than Florida. Right. So, what what good does closing the schools do? We don't closing the schools and other lockdown measures, restaurants, did not stop the pandemic. It didn't get. It didn't save lives. Um, you have, uh, and the vaccines, the vaccines, as we already said, don't stop transmission. We have no technology to stop the spread of the disease. It, it spreads based on regional and, uh, regional and, and seasonal patterns. Um, we have a technology potentially to, to protect the vulnerable. Before the, before the vaccines, we could have done much more to protect older people, so to reduce the risk of exposure, um, which maybe we can talk about. Uh, and after the vaccine, to make sure that older people had confidence in it, that it was 
uh, while it's not it's it's a it's a vaccine with uh, you know uh, that had been pushed through very fast, it was relatively safe and for them very effective in producing the risk of death. It was so important to make sure every older person in in, in the world was vaccinated with this. I think to, as a way to protect them from this deadly disease. Um, if we adopted that strategy, a strategy aimed at protecting the vulnerable from the beginning, instead of this mistaken strategy based on the false premise that we can stop the disease from spreading, I think our results would have been so much better. Last question along those lines. If there is to be a reevaluation of our public health agencies and advice that's done, how does that happen? Because the agencies I don't see as making an independent review and all the people making decisions are the same conflicted interests that were responsible for what many would argue were the poor decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it has to, the, the personnel has to change. And frankly, I, 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 uh, before the pandemic, I was kind of naive about this, but there's so much politics involved in this that I, I also believe the, 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 it has to, it, the, the, the kind of reforms we're talking about will not happen unless there's political pressure to make it happen. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't care which party it comes from, but it absolutely has to come from the people, right? The people for whom public health is supposed to, you know, that's who's supposed to serve, right? Public health is supposed to serve. The people have been misserved by public health. And so the people, people are going to have to demand that the reforms that happen um, uh, 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 are driven by people who are not conflicted, who didn't make these mistakes, um, and I think so. F I, mean, I, I know that there's an impetus to try to do an evaluation where the people doing the evaluation are those same ones who made the mistake. If that happens, it'll just cement the distrust that the public has in public health. Certainly, it'll cement my distrust. Can you tell us, in summary form, what is the Great Barrington Declaration, the idea behind it, and what happened with that? Sure. Uh, so, in, in the, the, there's. Uh, We've been circling around this fact. The fact is that there's a thousand-fold difference in the risk of severe disease. Oldest people, very high risk of death. 80% of deaths are people over 65 uh, around the world. Um, whereas young people, especially children, have very low risk of severe disease, right? very low death rates. Um, that's fact one. There, there are very few times in epidemiology you see such a steep age gradient. Um, fact two, the lockdowns are deadly. The lockdowns are a deadly, horrible, not just deadly uh, in the sense of like, it's a metaphorical sense, it act, they actually kill, right? There, there are uh, uh, people who, women who skipped their breast cancer screening who are showing up with late stage breast cancer that should have been picked up earlier. They're gonna die as a result of the, of the, the lockdowns. Uh, there are children who had a year and a half of school stolen from them. And that has consequences because they're going to. If you miss school or you have inadequate schooling through your entire life, you will you'll be less healthy. You'll lead a shorter life. There's lots of evidence going back decades on this. Schools are a fantastic investment. We decided to do away with it. Um, the psychological harms from the lockdowns are devastating. Right. So anxiety, depression, and level. I mean, it just I've never seen. Um, and uh, and that's in rich countries. In poor countries, we have tens of millions of people thrown into poverty as a consequence of the economic dislocation. And poverty kills, you know, again, millions of people dying from starvation, hundreds of thousands of children dying from starvation in poor countries. And there's a consequence of the lockdown. These are not something that, it's not the virus kills you of starvation. This is the, the 
policy response we followed. Um, and so you have these two facts. You have this age gradient uh, in risk of COVID, and you have the lockdowns killing indiscriminately, especially the poor, the working class, the vulnerable. Um, the Great Barrington Declaration said, let's devote our resources to protecting the old, older populations and other people with severe, severe uh, with chronic conditions that predispose them to bad outcomes if they get COVID. Um, and for the rest of the population, let, let's live as close to normal lives as possible. That's it. That's the strategy. You had a lot of scientists sign on to that. Do you know how many? Uh, tens of thousands of scientists and doctors signed on. We have almost uh, 950,000 regular people. Um, this despite like big, big tech suppression of it. And yet, what happened to some of those scientists because they signed on to something that I think in retrospect shows was absolutely spot on? I mean, I, th- it's, it's, uh, I have to say the strategy itself... Uh, the idea is not even original. It's the same pandemic plan we followed for decades in respiratory pandemic after respiratory pandemic. As recently as 2009 with the H1N1 flu pandemic. It's essentially the Great Barrington Declaration, except it wasn't called that then. Um, the, the, the scientists who signed on, many of them lost, their, some of them lost their jobs. Many wrote, write to me and tell me that they lost opportunities to, to collaborate on grants. They were ostracized. They were... Uh, uh, I mean, essentially marginalized uh, in, within their own communities just for the act of signing on to uh, the, the, the old pandemic plan. Um, the, uh, the, the other thing that, that, uh, that's happened is that many scientists wrote to me telling me that they wanted to sign it, but they, were, that they felt like they would lose their careers, they would lose their, lose their jobs, they would lose their, their, their social standing, whatever it was. They were scared to sign on because they saw what happened to me and the other, other folks who signed it. Um, and what, ha- what happened, I think, I'm not sure we've already talked about, like this, this is a really interesting thing, right? So we wrote this document on October 4, 2020, released it. It went viral beyond my expectations. Um, four days later, I find out from an email, from a FOIA email, Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, wrote an email accusing me, Sinetra Gupta of Oxford University, one of the world's best epidemiologists, and uh, Martin Kuldorf, one of the world's best epidemiologists and biostatisticians from Harvard, Stanford, Harvard, Oxford, of, of being fringe epidemiologists and then asking for a devastating published takedown of our premises, to which Tony Fauci responded with a Wired magazine article. Um, you, what you have is... Uh, Was the Wired magazine article negative on this information? <laughs> they, they didn't like the Great Barrington Declaration very much. Um, uh, but, you know, I don't think they understood the Great Barrington Declaration. They, they, they started, I started getting calls from reporters asking me why I wanted to let the virus rip. I never thought about letting the virus rip. In fact, my job, my thought was to protect the vulnerable, the old, older population who was at high risk. It was essentially an, an organized propaganda campaign started by the NIH, at least, at least as, far as, as best I can tell with the FOIA documents I've seen so far, um, to marginalize me, to call me fringe, even though I've been a Stanford professor for 20 years, uh, in the medical school. So I don't, I don't really, um, I don't know how to process that. I, I would have thought that if I were in Tony Fauci's position and you have prominent outside scientists saying, look, the strategy we're following is deadly and, and, and leading to too many deaths for, and not, not particularly, is, is not saving lives, is bad for bad, I would have engaged with those scientists to try to understand what are they talking about. Instead, I've never heard from him. And I, I've, just, I've just got, the, I've felt the brunt of the propaganda campaign where he had friendly reporters come and try to attack me. His friendly to him come and attack me. 
So were you ever called fringe, to your knowledge, before all of this? No, I, I don't. I mean, not that I'm aware of. I mean, I, I'd say, like, and I've kind of embraced it. I'm, gonna, I, I'm thinking of starting a uh, society for fringe epidemiologists. <laughs> <laughs> what has changed for you as someone who led a relatively calm, I guess, mainstream scientific life and then was thrown into this propaganda campaign where you were controversialized as fringe because of your perfectly rational views? I mean, it's been a very strange time for me. Friends of mine on campus uh, have stopped talking to me. Uh, a, lot of the, a lot of people that I trusted, I, I, I just no longer can trust. Um, and uh, the life on this campus, which I've been at Stanford for 35 years, first as a student uh, uh, and then, then as a professor. Uh, I've never seen a situation before where you couldn't disagree with people constructively. But that's been the case these last two years. Essentially, academic freedom is a dead letter at Stanford, as far as I'm concerned, the last two years. Um, I, I, my views, I've, been, I've managed to like, get many places to cover, to, to cover them. I've managed to get those views out, but not at Stanford. Right? Normally, what would happen when you have a disagreement about science or policy or whatever is you'd have, you'd have platforms for this constructive engagement between the people who disagree. I mean, I'm happy to, if I'm wrong, I want to know. It's called scientific debate. Yeah, exactly. And I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't view my job as being right all the time. I don't think anyone's job can be that. My, I view my job as uh, giving my view as best I can based on the data and then correcting those views as, as new data come in, as I learn that if I made some error, I want to know that. Um, I think that that's, that's been the fun part of my career, of being in science. I, I get to learn all the time. Uh, it just we just haven't had had that at Stanford the last two years, um, and it's been very frustrating to me. And I don't know how we were healed because uh, science depends on good faith engagements between people who, who potentially might disagree with each other. We're all looking at the same data or similar data. We, we we have disagreement how to interpret it. We ask for new data. We develop. We look. We 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 work on these complicated problems together. That's how science actually works, because no one there's no one on earth that knows. All, all the truth, especially for a novel, a novel disease, you're going to look, you're going to need people. Lots of minds may disagree with each other. Instead, what we've had is propaganda. We've had this like, okay, uh, you know, Tony Fauci famously said to uh, to, to Francis to uh, Rand Paul in a Senate hearing. He said uh, Rand Paul challenged him on some aspect. It was natural immunity or something. Um, he said, look, you're not just simply attacking a man; you are attacking science itself. I couldn't. That is, if there's anything more anti-scientific than that, I don't know what it is. Three final questions that are sort of summary form. First, what do you think is among the most important things we learned about COVID during the past couple of years? I think the, the, probably the most important thing we learned about COVID, we learned in the very first days of the disease, that it, it is a incredibly deadly disease for older people two, three, four, five percent mortality rate if you're infected. And for children, thank God they're relatively spared. That, that fact, that is the single most important fact that should have driven COVID policy for, uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. What is among the most important things you've learned, maybe in the bigger picture as a scientist, about how things work when there's a message that's to be put out? Before the pandemic, I had full confidence in the mechanisms of science 
to eventually get to something closer to the, close to the truth. Right? I, that, that the mechanisms of science, I mean ways that scientists can engage with each other constructively to correct each other, to ask for experiments, to, and eventually learn the truth. Learn, learn, as, as close as humans are possible can know the truth about a whole bunch of topics. Um, and I took for granted, uh, essentially I took for granted the Enlightenment. That's, that is the Enlightenment idea, that this free inquiry within science. What I've learned during the pandemic is that those institutions are incredibly fragile, that the Enlightenment itself is incredibly fragile, that they require a defense, which I never thought was necessary before the pandemic. Um, that, and in fact, the kinds of scientific discussions that I took for granted for most of my career uh, are not, cannot survive a, a situation where you have government bodies controversializing perfectly reasonable positions, suppressing debate and, and suppressing discussion, employing um, propaganda techniques like big tech or, uh, or, 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 or the press to attack, personally attack uh, the, uh, the, the lives of scientists who disagree. Now, you cannot have science where the, the government essentially can control what it wants to have ha happen. So, I mean, this is, it's like it, it, uh, I studied a, a little bit about the, what happened during, um, in the Soviet Union. Uh, the, the, there was a scientist named Lysenko who was convinced that, he, that, that Darwin's evolutionary theory didn't work. And he was Stalin's favorite biologist. And he systematically got rid of all of the evolutionary biologists who agree with Darwin's theory. Um, you can't have a science where that kind of political muscle is applied to science. You have to let science, there has to be freedom for science to actually work. And I didn't fully understand that before the pandemic, but now, now I see it. And then lastly, what would you say is a major takeaway the public should have from this whole experience? Whether it's about something with COVID or even something broader as they seek to get good information and hope that their public agencies that they're paying are making the right decisions? I think um, for, for the public, I think, frankly, I think the public should feel betrayed. I think the public agencies that are responsible for the, the pandemic response gave bad advice to the, to the uh, political folks who were in charge of actually, actually implementing policy. The political folks who are, in, most of them, they're not scientists. Uh, and th th when, this, when this pandemic hit, they reasonably looked to these scientific agencies for advice. Instead of the scientific agencies accurately conveying the uncertainties, and uh, what happened is the pol many politicians offloaded the responsibility for those decisions to these agencies. And, and, many, and some of the people at the top of those agencies effectively took took that opportunity to get their way, even when there was scientific debate. Uh, I think Tony Fauci has been the de facto president of the United States for the last two years, and he's ruined two presidencies, in my view. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford. My cover story on my Sunday TV program, Full Measure, will be devoted to this topic on Sunday, April 10th. You can find out where this program airs in your area by going to CherylAckison.com and click the full measure tab, you'll see the list. Or you can download our free app, STIRR, S-T-I-R-R, to watch Full Measure live or on demand anytime, plus a lot of other cool free entertainment and news programming there. Or if it's easiest, just go to fullmeasure.news online, fullmeasure.news. The program airs there live 
on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time and then post thereafter. In fact, you can watch last week's program right now at fullmeasure.news. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that you will leave a review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. You can also check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, and all the Just the News podcasts wherever you like to listen. Also, if you'd like to support independent journalism at this really seminal time in journalism, you can visit CherylAckeson.com and click the store tab for some thought-provoking and fun products designed exclusively for people like you, independent and free thinkers, with proceeds from sales benefiting independent reporting causes. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. All right, folks, all of you know the story about my crick in my neck and how I bought a MyPillow a few years ago, and all of a sudden, my neck just healed up. In fact, the orthopedist couldn't figure out what the heck had John done. I, it was simple. I just bought one of Mike Lindell's pillows, and I all of a sudden found I wasn't sleeping right on my pillow. Mike's pillows did the trick. Well, guess what? He's done it again. He's got something new. He's now introducing his new My Slippers. You want the best slipper ever, the best foot experience late at night. Well, Mike has got, he took over two years to develop this. He designed it to wear this slipper indoor and outdoor all day long. It's comfortable, it's durable. It's made with my pillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue in the slipper. And it's made with quality leather suede. They look good, they feel good, they wear good. For a limited time now, Mike is offering 50% off his new MySlippers. You will also receive a free book with any purchase. The MySlippers are so comfortable that you'll want to get some for the whole family. It's a great gift, especially heading into springtime. So here, here's what you do. You go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's easy to remember, right? The promo code JUSTNEWS and you will get deep discounts on all the MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets the MyPillow mattress topper, and of course, the MyPillow towel set. And don't forget, y'all want those my slippers. You got to have them. They're incredible. Here's another way you can take advantage of this. You can call 800-951-3715 and use the promo code JUSTNEWS when someone picks up. Call 800-951-3715. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS. Pretty simple stuff for the best slipper sheet pillow experience of your life.